0: folks. I'm back. Uh, It's been a bit of a run. Dealing with the fire at my store has uh, taken a lot of my time and even more so a huge amount of my energy and focus. So the uh, practice of getting up and just getting anything done has been rather challenging over the last stretch. However, everything is settled with my insurance now waiting to hear about the rebuild on the space and I am at the time of recording this looking at an interim space to see clients out of and start doing stuff which includes having a nice space to record the podcast in and do this kind of work so thanks for sticking around thanks for waiting and uh, thanks to everybody who checked in and especially thanks to everybody who pitched in on the GoFundMe alright that's enough for me Let's get on with this podcast. Welcome to another installment of the Hermit's Net podcast. I'm here today with Marcus McCoy, and I would say that Marcus is a Renaissance person in a way. You know, I was thinking about how I would introduce them, and I'm like, well, they're they're into magic, and they're into plants, and they're into perfumes, and they're and I just started thinking, you know, they're kind of into everything, as far as I know. You know, there's not a lot that sort falls outside of the scope of their interests and so on. Uh, and I had the pleasure of meeting Marcus a few years back at the Northwest Tarot Symposium, and we had a great time hanging out, making ridiculous esoteric jokes, uh, and a little bit of serious conversation too. But, uh, yeah, but for people who don't know you, Marcus, give us the, give us the quick down low.
1: Renaissance man is pretty good. Uh, that's a pretty good assertion. Uh, when I was younger, I would, uh, try my hand at pretty much any art form. I could just, I just had to be creative and I'd get really bored. <laughs> or hit like a dead end and have to like pursue some other art form. And uh, yeah, that, that's pretty accurate for me. Um, yeah, I I own um, two different businesses. I have the House of Orpheus and Troll Cunning Forge. Um, uh, Troll Cunning Forge is a artisan blacksmithing, talisman making project that I've started uh, a couple years ago when I started blacksmithing. I 've only been doing that for a couple of years now. I um, really love it uh, really passionate about it and uh, House of Orpheus is uh, my perfume company um, i've always had a passion for perfumes i'm not the typical passion for perfumes, but uh, it's something that's really interested me for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So that project, uh, those are my two businesses. And then we run the British Genie symposium, my partner and I, and what else? Yeah, I've got my, we, we, have a lot of different projects that we're working on. For sure. We're also going to be starting three and a lot of different things. Very cool.
0: So I guess one of the things that stands out for me and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast was to talk about kind of kind of what you do for sure, but also the way in which you approach it because you know my experience of kind of uh, both talking with you and seeing your stuff online is that there is a, a different sense of relationship to plants and spirit and materials than than maybe I run into in a lot of places you know and I've seen a lot of talk over the last couple of years as the word animism returns to favor in the you know, in the Western magical circles. And it seems to me that you've been an animist since before animism was cool, if that makes any sense, you know? But
1: make animism cool, actually. Yeah. Yeah, the uh bioregional animism project, bioregional animism was something that I had coined. Um I started that many years ago and uh started an online community back when tribes I think tribes.net was a thing. Okay. And and had a the first blog on bioregional animism uh mm-hmm. called bioregional animism that sadly got Taken offline when Blogger uh, got bought up or absorbed into Google, yeah. and they made it impossible for you to like maintain your or renew your uh, um, account with them. So, yeah, it got absorbed, but I still have all the information. It's still in Blogger. I just can't have the bioregionalanimism.com anymore. Mm. You got law. Well, yeah. so.
0: Tell, tell me about how you came to that. Like, how, do, how did you come to bioregional animism?
1: I was working with a South American shaman, um, doing a particular set of ceremonies every year. Um, ceremony, The particular ceremony was called the long dance ceremony, and he would incorporate... Um, South American shamanic practices with this North American dance that he had learned from his teacher in beautiful painted arrow. And a lot of the, the insight that you got Mm -hmm. from the long dance ceremony was that you are the land dancing, you are place. Um, Mm -hmm. And so as an extension of place, the spirit of place moves through you and creates the prayers um, it dances, and through that insight, I started recognizing that animism as a whole was the genus loci or the spirit of place um, moving through us, creating new traditions, establishing relationships to maintain uh, an equilibrium within the bioregion within the the, the larger ecological whole, uh, which includes human beings. But the problem is that most people think of themselves as being separate from that. Sure. Ceremonies like that uh, allowed us to or assist us in recognizing that we are the spirit of place and we're an expression of place and that the traditions that we think that we are creating, we're actually just also an expression of, of of that place experiencing itself as us and so I think that that was the that's what I experienced and wanted to share with other people and so bioregional animism became a way of communicating that to other people uh, now keep in mind animism at that time I had an anthropology uh, background I was uh, I had my degree in Transpersonal anthropology. So I was, I was young, uh, when this started and, uh, my twenties and when I first started writing about bioregional animism. And I was incorporating a lot of words that I felt could articulate Mm -hmm. it, uh, carefully. And so I went against the old, uh, animist anthropological structure of what animism meant and for the new research and the new academic uh, perspectives on uh, animism, which were highlighted by uh, religious scholars like Graham Harvey. So he's what he did there was basically redefine animism in a way that was more akin to uh, global populations of animist people, how they actually perceive it. The previous model, uh, the Western anthropological model or perceived perception of of what animism was, was a projection of Neoplatonism onto indigenous Mm worldviews, which I mean, that's kind of what the colonists have always done, you know, (laughs) from, from what doesn't everyone think of things in terms of spirits and, you know, like the mind body split and all these Neoplatonic ideas we just project them everywhere <clears throat> or see them everywhere. But the reality is, is that once you get involved with a, uh, indigenous worldview and start to learn, uh, their perspectives, you start seeing that it's not, you know, there's more than one ontological system in the world <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. not all Neopolis. And, and they don't all view the world in the same way that we do in terms of like there being uh, a body and a spirit. And when the, the body dies; the spirit goes into the spiritual plane, and that's not how all the all the world sees it. So, instead of thinking of animism as mm-hmm. things of having a an animating spirit, we move over to a new way of looking at it, which is a relational ontology. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people now that animism is really popular, uh, a lot of people are really missing that they're still thinking from this old colonial projection of animism onto, uh, animist people, indigenous people. Um, but they, they're doing themselves a great disservice into not thinking about it further and actually looking at what indigenous people did. And instead they're just maintaining, they're not animist. They're still, they're still Neoplatonists, but they're just now allowing other things to have a spirit. <laughs> Right, right.
0: So, so that distinction between sort of projecting a a human experience as a spirit in a body, right, being extended to everything else, which is the the sort of Platonic model, right, and and then in the other model, can you say more for people about what that what that difference is? How how is that difference? scene you know and i understand there's no universal difference there but like what are what are some other ideas or other ways of thinking about that that you know they use smaller words
1: maybe (laughs) so oh you want me to use smaller words damn it okay i used to do that in the psych word all the time when i led student groups Yeah. (laughs) so maybe do (laughs) it so um We are lending. We are we are accepting that the the world has many different uh, viewpoints as to how it may work, mm-hmm. right? And that not one is superior to another, mm-hmm. and that it is very mysterious, mm-hmm. and that that stream may never be solved. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that that's 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 how we can get our foundation of what maybe an – ontology is
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. <laughs> from yeah. a simple standpoint. But then, so from a relational ontology standpoint, we're understanding that it's our relationships and how we relate with the world around mm-hmm. us that help create the way we perceive the universe. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so in that, what makes animism a relational ontology is that we accept and lend our own personhood to others and we acknowledge others as being persons
2: mm-hmm.
1: that ability to communicate with us just as we do because that's a trait that persons have mm-hmm. they can communicate yeah right and so um now now we've gone and we've we've taken animism and we've we've removed it from this idea that it has to revolve around an animating spirit
2: mm-hmm.
1: because having an animating spirit revolves around one particular ontological system yeah we've identified that as being neoplatonism right mm-hmm. that we're projecting onto all the world's ontological systems so we've stopped doing that and now we can I, Open up and acknowledge that there may be other ways of relating to persons,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Yeah, that are still animist because of the relation aspect. Mm-hmm. So that means that there's a whole lot of different ways that we can relate, and I think that's really interesting. From a and that's where I really got into the bioregional uh, aspect was that when I was writing about it, I never wanted anyone to identify as a bioregional animist. And that's kind of against the point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The point was is to relate to place as self, Mm -hmm. and to allow place to express itself as you. Mm -hmm. And so you would, as in doing so, Mm -hmm. you would get to know yourself as place, and and new traditions, new ways of being, new practices would become like an expression, just like a a plant evolving in a place and 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 now taking on new traits
2: mm-hmm.
1: as it evolved uh, uh, surroundings, and so unfortunately, a lot of people like these catchphrases and they want identity, and so they don't want to go deep with that, and mm-hmm. so they just identify you know, by a regional animist, and they still are working with these old ideas, um, of what animism means. And they weren't really paying attention when I was talking in the first place, apparently.
0: <laughs> well, and I think that, you know, having, having relationships to, to, well, to spirit and to place, you know, so often people are, um, at least from what I see in here, a lot of it is very identity driven is very, um, narrow in its perspective, right? And I think that there's in what I hear you talking about there is a multitude of possibilities that continue to be present all the time. You know, and I think about it like um you know, I mean I, practicing uh you know the lakumi tradition, right? You know, there there are uh things that have ashe, right? They have energy and they have a certain kind yep. of energy. That, uh, that might be seen to be inherent in them, but those things are modified and that energy is, is changed or different depending on the relationship and what's going on and the, the, the time and place and where it's active. And it's different depending on the presence of uh, the spirits and whether the Orishas are present and whether they are embodying those elements or using those elements in a certain way, at which point that thing becomes something different than it was before. And in amongst all of that, it's continuously um, shifting and able to sort of hold a variety of energies, relationships, or, or, or spirit, for that matter. And But it's not easily definable in terms of this is the thing that it is. Right? Does that make sense? Is that kind of some of what you're talking about?
1: Totally. And Lukumi is really an interesting example because it's something that um, spread from uh, Africa yep. to the new world. And in every place that uh, it adapted to or, or recreated mm-hmm. itself in uh <coughs> whether it was, uh, I guess Cuba and Brazil being the primary places. And some people could argue, I guess that there was influences of course, to like Haiti, mm-hmm. but you can see, and I may be wrong there, but well, uh, I'm no, I ex- for sure. Yeah, sure. So it really is fascinating to see the differences in the way that they expressed themselves and how they adapted to place. Um, and how they had to adapt to different plants and, uh, wildlife and nature itself, you know, I and mean, those are, it's nature religion in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: yeah. So how do people, how do people start to, uh, to find this kind of deeper connection? Like what, what do people, you know, now, now that your, your blogger group is gone, how do people, how do people approach this? What, you know, for people looking to, uh, you know, go beyond sort of the kind of more direct or limited perspective we, we started off talking about, and looking to kind of dig deeper into how do we how do we live in relationship to space
1: and to the things that are there?
0: What what do you suggest people do?
1: Well, I think uh, I mean it's difficult because we're not born with that, you know, like the, the, the language of speaking place isn't our first language. You know, we're taught a consumer based language, sure. you know, a trade language, yeah. you know, at least in North America, you know, it's a, it's, what is it, a Creole or a, a English is a, considered a Creole or a, a trade language, um, which is interesting, but <clears throat> we, uh, we need to change, we need to learn the language of the land itself. Um, we need to go out and um, start deconstructing the identity that we've been taught um, that excludes place from being self. Right. Like we got to discover why that is within ourselves and all these different things that the ego has uh, um, clung on to to create that structure that we identify as, as, as you or I. And that's a process that's individual. Mm Um, but it needs to include place and the spirits of place in that process, um, humbly. And I also believe that one of the greatest ways of accomplishing that is through, um, the venue of humble service. I think, uh, finding a way to, um, integrate your motivations and your spiritual path in that process of discovering, uh, and deconstructing uh, the ego and replacing it with uh, a sense of uh, self as 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 one with place mm-hmm. um, is best done through uh, the the lens of of a path of servitude, humble servitude.
0: yeah, i think I think it's easy to you know, and it's just come up on many podcasts that I've done over the the past few years. It's easy to have a very transactional relationship with spirit or to try and have a transactional relationship with spirit. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. Like think about how people approach the Goetia and other things, right? Listen here, you do this, I'll do this. Let's get it done. You know, it's, but, you know, it's not necessarily, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Or, I mean, it can work that way, but it's not, yeah, I think, it can't be like connecting to place, can't be centered around that as the practice.
1: That can be an avenue what I learned from Peruvian practices is the uh, idea of like sacred reciprocity, where there's a there's a, a, an exchange of life force always going on, mm-hmm. uh, and that it's not transactional per se. Yeah. It's more of uh, respect and honor and gratitude, and there are these things that make animism that that are kind of like that you can see. Between all animist societies, that become like a sort of uh, what you we consider spiritual, mm-hmm. um, where it's uh, it's it's living from the the heart and the will, you know, like where you're you're honoring everything, yeah, all the time, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you're paying respect to everything all the time, and you're in such deep gratitude to everything. All the time, you know, like a good friend of mine in a ceremony once told me, uh, you know, when we were talking about, you know, and and trying to deconstruct those those ego constructs that that uh, prevent us from from feeling and allowing the the spirit of the land to to be us. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he's like, you know, the more I'm grateful for, the more I have to be grateful for. Hmm. And it was just those these little these little things these little insights that come um, throughout life. You know, when you're dedicated to working on that that path, that uh, you remember, and they 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 they're so simple, mm-hmm. but they they keep you they keep your feet on the ground. Yeah, for they sure. Evolution process. And-
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that there's a quality to. Um, the way in which we pay attention that changes with these kinds of approaches too. you know, it's not about, um, it's about noticing what happens and noticing those things as, as the dialogue, you know, and and being part of that conversation, you know, and I think about the, you know, the birds that visit my backyard. Uh, I think about the, surprising plants that emerged this spring new that I that have never had in my yard before. I don't know Mm -hmm. where they came from, you know, I'm like, Mm -hmm. excellent, wonderful. Welcome new friends. What's, you know, and, and that'll be a thing that I will mull over for months to come, you know, and sort of get a sense of what those, what those are and what they want and why they, you know, why they're here. And I understand that on one level we could say, well, probably the squirrels dug them up or the birds spread the seeds, but, but that's not really what it's about right it's about understanding what that relationship means and what that shifting relationship means as as an extension of as you say ourselves and as our sort of very very extended sense of self within a space
1: yeah and you know it's inter- as as an herbalist i get it really excited because there's this idea called uh like volunteer plants where like a plant will uh volunteer itself or introduce itself and it's, it's literally like discovering a new part of yourself Right? <laughs> like oh, i didn't know that i was really like that or or this is something about me that i never realized before you know that's similar it's a similar sense or uh, like feeling but you get really excited when this this new plant introduces itself or a new animal and anytime i see a new life form uh, that I've never seen before. You can ask my partner. I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God.
0: What is it? What's <laughs> going on? What do you mean? What do you got to say? Sure. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and I get just in trance and I just fall in love uh, with all these new plants that I discovered. I remember when I first discovered, um I'm talking more about plants now, but uh, there's a plant called the ground ivy. Mm-hmm. And and this plant just kept appearing. I just kept seeing it here and there, and it kept showing up, kept showing up, kept showing up. And I was really fascinated by it, and it just caught my eye. And it was such a a subtle plant where you really would you just glance over it, you wouldn't even notice it. It, it just has it grows like in the grass. You can't even see it sometimes, and sometimes you'll see like entire outcroppings of it. But you, it, it's really inconspicuous uh, and doesn't really show itself. And it's got these little green kidney-shaped leaves and these little tiny, every once in a while it'll have these little tiny purple flowers. Mm. And you really don't notice it And when you, you pick it and you, its aromatic properties are kind of maybe a little like on the mint level but a little bit more pungent like a geranium. Mm. Kind of like in this kind of place in between the two. Um but like more a little bit more like leaning towards like the stinking geranium side. And and so you're like, okay, well maybe it's kind of a bitter, and then I did some you know, and tried finding out what it was, trying to identify a plant that you've never heard of before, or you just found it's kind of challenging. Sure. Um, but I was I was mm-hmm. able to find some some people that were like, oh yeah, it's this, you know, and I posted a picture and and found some talked to some other plant geeks and figured out that it was what it was. And <clears throat> Started doing more research, looking at folklore stuff with it, and lo and behold, this plant is used to uh, help you identify who's a witch. Okay. And that it will help you identify who's done witchcraft on you. Hmm. But that's just in the folklore. You know, like you read this and was like, okay, well, there's no... No one tells you about like how they used it or what the folklore was other than that. It's just that's what it was used for, or that's what its purpose was. Its other purpose was uh, as a Gruet, so uh, adding it to beers as a flavoring for beers, which is also kind of interesting. So <clears throat> I get to know this plant, and I'm getting to know this plant now over years. Mm-hmm. It's like three or four years of me having this like this courtship with this plant, getting to know it better and better and better and better. And There are other ways that I've learned to get to know a plant really well, if I really need to, um, uh, working with different, uh, visionary plants, you can like, uh, Ayahuasca, for example, you can get to know, uh, a plant spirit really easily. And also if you start practicing any of the work from the Grimoire Sympathia, um, Charbot's work, uh, that's incredible. It's very much akin to South American plant shamanry, um, But uh, at any rate, I wasn't taking the relationship that intensely with this plant, and I just wanted to get to know it the long way. But through just attuning myself to it and working with it, I started getting this idea that I should take the vine, wrap it into kind of a wreath, a small wreath, like about the size that could go over your wrist, mm-hmm. and look through it like a monocle, mm. just symbolically, and then place it into your pocket and carry it around with you. And when I did okay. that, all of the subtle witchcrafts that people do, and when I say subtle witchcrafts, I talk about, uh, you know, like glamour, making yourself look like you're someone that you're not, or envidia. Uh, you know, or envy, uh, uh, the evil eye, these these little things that, that, that everyone's capable of uh, that happen all the time to people and <clears throat> that are also magical. And I started seeing these things happen, and people's glamours, especially, uh, started to fade away, and I started seeing people that were in my life for who they really were which was really startling. (laughs) And I was really just blown away by this plant's ability to do that. Um, And uh, yeah, I grow it now. It's been very helpful.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It's very helpful.
0: Well, I think that it's one of the things that's fascinating. If you spend that time listening and relating, then the plants will, will show their mysteries, right? You know, and it's so different than than the idea that we'll just, you know, Marcus, tell me, what's the way? What's the thing I do? How do I, you know, what's the spell? What's the whatever, right? And, I mean, that stuff's great, too. Like, it's fine. But but I think that becoming curious about it and being open through curiosity to get to know it, uh, I think often reveals something different. And to me, I think it's also... It's sort of like the the idea of like uh, having a license from the plant to work with it, you know? If it reveals its mystery to you through whatever means, to me, that's often going to be way more effective or sh- powerful or fruitful than maybe the stuff where you just went and read some stuff in a book and were like, oh, okay. And it's also going to be back to that idea of place. It's going to be you know, where you are and what's available to you. Right. As opposed to, you know, like as I and practice Lukumi know? in Canada, right. It's like, it's hard. Cause there's not a lot of stuff here that grows in the Caribbean. Right. Some, Wait.
1: you know, i here in Seattle, yeah. you know, in the, the Washington area. Yeah. I, my friends that practice Lukumi, you know, up in Seattle and Renton, yeah, they, they have to deal the same problems, you know, like with different trees or plants and things and having to order them and, yeah, it's it's interesting, uh that tradition and its adaptations to place, uh working with the local plants. Mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of it. I've seen I've heard some people trying to uh work with local plants. Um but yeah, I haven't seen too much success with it yet. Um but once again, you know, like you were saying, we're we're treating the plant as a person. Not an object mm-hmm. or a tool, and I think a lot of times uh, the Western perspective is to treat things as objects and tools and to have a very utilitarian uh, relationship with it you know a, a more of a, a a new animism we'll call it new animism approach would be to relate to the plant as a person and to like you were saying you know like establish a relationship with it. Mm-hmm. Let the plant teach you its 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 secrets
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know instead of trying to pry the secrets from the plant we're we 're getting to know it and um, a lot of plants really want mm-hmm. to to help they want to introduce themselves to you they want to just like I was saying with the the volunteer plants it 's amazing uh mother it's a classic plant for uh, um, new moms, mm-hmm. and it will. It's historically it's been known to to just start growing at a new mother's house. Mm. Just start growing there, and that just helps. You know, if you know motherwort, it's a um, a bit of an anti anxiety, and I'm I'm sure that your nerves are frazzled when you're your new parent.
0: <laughs> Definitely, I can attest to that for sure well and there 's something too about being in relationship to those plants over time you know i uh, I used to do this ceremony uh, at this particular sort of woodland on a on a farm north of Toronto and we did ceremony uh, every month for two years there basically and um, one of the one of the highlights was I spent uh, ten days there by myself fasting and doing ceremonies and stuff and during that time my connection to that place grew tremendously, you know, because I was there because I was around it because I had seen it through seasons, you know, um, mm-hmm. and the culmination of that, uh, particular retreat, there was, uh, a tree, a, a large cherry tree that, um, there was in sort of West of where at the West edge of the, the space we did ritual at. And, at the time that I was there, when I was doing my, my evening sun salutations, I realized that the cherry sap was oozing out of the tree because as the sun set behind it, it became like little stained glass, you know, gems, you know, oh,
2: I know. yeah,
0: right? Yeah. And, and there are those moments where, you know, that's that's a 15 minute window in the day at one part of the year, you know? But being there for that, it opens you up to, to different things and to, you know, different ways of relating to it and, you know, collecting that resin and working with it and doing other things and, you know, and so on, right? It's just, it, it's like, uh, it's like it opens a road for you to start traveling down.
1: Mm-hmm, indeed. And it's it's even more, it's even more interesting. That, so a lot of different animist societies uh, believed it was, once again, they didn't necessarily all have this idea of like a spirit or a spirit world. A lot of things were just supernatural, hmm. right? And another trait that persons had was the trait of being able to shape change or become invisible. So we have invisibility and shape-changing as being traits that persons have, especially supernaturally powerful persons. And plants and animals were considered some of the most supernaturally powerful beings around, other than huge aspects of nature, you know, lightning, thunder, uh, mountains, rivers, lakes, things like that, the ocean. And so... When you meet a plant and it has shape changed into human form and it talks to you and you get to relate to it as, a, as another than human person that is taking on the shape of a human person so that it can relate to you, mm-hmm. you the level of intimacy and the way that you can relate to that plant changes All of a sudden, because we now see that we no longer see that plant as other. We see it as as human. Well, wow, it's got a human face. Mm -hmm. It's got it's a person, you know, like because we're still so indoctrinated, especially uh, to only see persons as human persons. Yeah, it's very hard for us still, especially, I think, in Western society to to lend over. Uh, personhood to other than human persons or to things that we perceive as being other. Uh, Even within animist societies that there were things that they didn't think of as being a person. And that's something that's important to like discuss on the table when we're looking at animism is that not all things were considered persons. Not all rocks were rock people. Mm. Certain rocks were. There are specific rocks sometimes, and then sometimes all all rocks were considered rock persons. But for the most part, not all rocks were considered rock persons, and that's that's something to consider and and to bring into the the conversation. But it's really interesting when you do have that experience, and say like with the the cherry tree that you saw or that you know, experienced, so you have this really beautiful experience with. And you imagine meeting that being. That cherry tree, as it shape-changed itself into a human being and spoke with human words in a way that you could understand and it had a conversation with you, or it taught you something, or it gave you a song, or it taught you a particular type of magic, or it taught you a particular type of magic that you could do with its body. Mm Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Yeah.
1: Or it taught you lessons of, uh, and related its own personal personal virtues. You know, the virtues of the cherry are are renowned throughout poetic history. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. <laughs> and so and its use in medicine and uh, culinary uh, things, you know, like I, I once met strawberry and had a uh, was received a powerful lesson from Strawberry and mm. and uh, sex magic, or how to attract and allure, and to use glamour to attract people or, or to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Strawberries most definitely are very skilled at that.
0: <laughs> so so you know your email is going to be full after this comes out now, right?
1: A lot of are going to want to know how to talk to strawberry. but uh, <laughs> but it's really. Um, it changes when you allow that to happen. And I, I believe that uh, the work, like I said once again, uh really want to introduce more people to Sharpeau's uh, work and the, the book The Grimoire, Sympathia. He was a Welsh, uh, a Welsh wizard from mm-hmm. <laughs> the 1800s who was able to basically accomplish much of the same thing that we acknowledge that like South American ayahuascaros are doing or vegetalistas are doing with with uh, ayahuasca, but through just honing his psychic abilities to communicate with plants, and he did it from a very Western esoteric model, which I think is really important for Western people to to recognize. Like here we have this Welsh, you know, if we want to call him a shaman or a sorcerer or a magician, whatever, you have him doing this thing that we exoticize Mm -hmm. down in South America and within indigenous communities. And here this is someone from, you know, like a Western European standpoint. We don't need to go and, and, you know, info mine and culturally appropriate from these other cultures in order to like have communications and to have relationships with plants and we don't have to borrow uh, indigenous traditions that we don't understand either the, here, this guy has given us through this book that he wrote an ability to do that and so I'd like to encourage more and more people to do it uh, the book is uh, available via PDF only at this point, uh, it's a very rare book um, but yeah, the Grimoire Sympathy is great
0: well, I think that that's people should definitely check that out. I've, I haven't read it, so I'm going to go check it out. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it, it's back to that idea of like, what's what's where you are, right? You know, what's the what's what's growing where you live? You know, what's growing in the parks and ravines and forests or wherever, depending on where you are. And how do mm-hmm. you how do you how can you relate to that? You know, because I think that there are so many. Um, wonderful and powerful plants, you know, like people, you know, there's a lot of discussion about sage and smudging and fumigation and and stuff like that. And, you know, if you want to clean something spiritually, you know, like one of my favorite things to go to is, you know, I have a very deep and long-term relationship with the burdock plant, you know, and you go dig up some of those roots and, you know, cook them up and use that to spray around your place does a really good job of getting rid of a lot of stuff, you know, and it's not, you know, and it's not exotic or fancy or glamorous or whatever. In fact, it's just a lot of work of trying to get those roots out of the ground, but it's worth it, you know?
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of different things that you can do too. I mean, whether it's in just paying attention to your surroundings and I mean, around here we have Western red cedar and Western red cedar is, Always been worked with for for cleansing uh, amongst the the indigenous people up here, but if you just start paying attention to the plant, you know you don't have to go through and like adopt their their beliefs, mm-hmm. you know, or or imitate their behaviors. You can actually just look at the plant and go, well, this plant doesn't allow anything to grow underneath of it. Nothing grows underneath of a red cedar and if you stand underneath of a red cedar in the middle of of summertime peak heat, you can actually feel uh, the essential oils dripping out of it in a vaporous form and falling on you and then those get into the they saturate the soil as well as you know the the branches falling down but within that within the essential oils volatile oils that are within the plant you 've got insecticides and herbicides and all these different like things that prevent other things from living underneath of it. Sure. And so it cleanses. It creates this protective circle around itself because trees grow in a circle. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so uh, they, they naturally protect themselves. And so you look at the, the relationship it has with water. You, you You sit underneath of a cedar tree in the rain. And you you pay attention to like well you know through the the branches the water are taking those same volatile oils and they're driving it deeper into the into the soil right so there's a relationship between the rain and the cedar and when I saw that and I experienced that I was given a gift
2: mm-hmm.
1: of 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 taking branches from the cedar. You know, like giving some of my hair in return, you know, and like like taking a branch or, or tobacco and 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 taking the cedar branch and dipping it in water and then using that to to spurge or sure. to like, cleanse myself. Yeah. And that's not imitating anybody. That's not culturally appropriating anything. Okay. That's me sitting underneath of a cedar tree, paying attention to how it grows and what its place is amongst all the other life forms and the forces of nature Mm -hmm. that help create it. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And we can do that. (laughs) We can take the time to pay attention, to learn. And like I said, if you really go deep and you can allow yourself to, even allow the the land Mm -hmm. to move you physically, it can move your mind, it can move your your voice, it can speak through you, Mm And to actually have that experience and to, to allow the spirit of place, the spirit of the land, uh, the intelligence of the land, mm-hmm. the genie of the land to to move you physically mm-hmm. in a dance or in a trance state is powerful. And to allow a plant, certain plants are more prone to doing that than others, um, like teacher plants or tutelary plants, they can come in and they can move you and they can physically uh, teach you and sh- share your body. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, uh, it's pretty incredible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, it's pretty and that's when you start, it's through having those experiences repeatedly that you start, that that level of reverence intensifies and that level of, uh, gratefulness intensifies and that level of respect intensifies and the way you live your life uh, becomes shaped by those things mm-hmm. and they become all by that. Yeah. And the way you relate to the world around you starts to change. And that's what we would call spiritual, but that's once again, <laughs> what? spirit of the word that's kind of constructed by the Western, you know, philosophical <laughs> language mm-hmm. base. It's not necessarily. Uh, we have to kind of find our own way of relating to it, and the word spiritual might not really even apply anymore.
0: Well, and I think one of the things that happens too is that when you're when you're working to be present in that way, whether we want to think of it as the earth reveals more things to you, or perhaps the plants and other things that are there you know, encourage their friends to reveal more to you, you know, but it becomes this process of, uh, expanding and, and sort of opening towards, um, you know, deeper access, deeper knowledge, you know, more mystery. Cause I think that mystery is always a part of it. And I found personally that, you know, the longer, the longer I try and hold this approach to working and being in the world, um, the more often something emerges even in advance of when I actually need it or before I know that I need it too. you know, there's this kind of fascinating thing where something will start to show up. And then, you know, a month later I'll be like, oh, hey, I'm glad, I'm glad I saw you. And now that, now that this thing came up, what what do you think about helping me with that? And it's, you know, it's like it was already, it was aware of it before I was right. You know, which I think is, this I think is fascinating. And, you know, some of the, I don't know. Yeah. What's the right word? Deeper magic, uh, more wondrous happenings around this kind of Mm -hmm. stuff, you know?
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those wondrous happenings that kind of maintain and, and create that sense of, of awe, you know, having that being a source of humility for yourself, Mm -hmm. uh, is, is beautiful. Um, Having more of those awe experiences, <laughs> Is, or, I mean, to me, I mean, that's that's a motivating factor into the exploration of magic itself. You know, like having more of those awe, like awe-dropping <laughs> sort of experiences yeah. where, like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's where it's at. <laughs>
0: it's definitely where it's at. <laughs> well, maybe we should wrap it up on that point. Go out and yeah. find the mystery. And engage the. As,
1: as I learned in, in a ceremony once, uh, is that we must perpetuate the mystery at all costs. Mm. I like it. Me too. Yeah.
0: So, for folks who, who want to find out more about you or, or follow along on your uh, great creations and uh, shenanigans on the internets, where, where should they come and look for you? Where, where's good places for your stuff and for where you're hanging out?
1: Okay, so I have houseoforpheus.com that you can find uh pretty easily on Facebook as well as just houseoforpheus.com and we're also on Instagram. I post on Instagram multiple times a day for each one of the projects that I work on um just to keep people informed. Um then there's also my metalwork, uh, working with talismans and blacksmithing, and that's at, uh, Troll Cunning Forge. And we're mostly on Instagram and Etsy. Uh, I post a lot of my one off stuff on, um, mm-hmm. Instagram though. And so just keep updated with the Instagram profile. And then, uh, the British Geni Symposium, uh, which is, uh, So that's V. I R I D I S. We'll put a link in
0: the, we'll link <laughs> in the notes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> if I was writing it down, it'd be easier. Um, no. Um, and then, we, so we have a, a Instagram for that, as well as Facebook profile and, and website. Uh, that's going to be coming up really soon. Uh, people that are really interested in uh, plant magic. I highly recommend checking it out. We've got Daniel Schulke and Corinne Boyer. and There's a, a whole bunch of really just amazing people speaking uh, this year. Um, and just really looking forward to it. It's going to be a great event. Um,
0: and also there's a publication in the same name, which we yeah, which we uh, carry in the shop know. when we're back up and running. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's it's around. You can definitely get that as well. And there's a lot of yeah. great stuff in there that's worth checking
1: out. Yeah, we just edited our, our, I think this is our fifth year. So the fifth edition, it's going to be amazing. So yeah, really looking forward to it being published. And we publish that when it comes out uh, during the, the event. So it's available at the event for people. That's awesome.
0: Well, thanks for hanging out with me today, Marcus. It's been
1: a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. It's been great. Anytime.
0: Thank you all, as always, for listening. I deeply appreciate it. Uh, the Patreon is going to start kicking back into high gear. So if you are interested in the podcast, you should definitely go check that out at patreon.com slash thehermitslamp. And as of the end of May here, all of the things that I was doing, except for the retail store itself, should be kicking up again, including new classes, ability to see clients again, and a limited selection of uh, online merchandise and goodies. So do check those things out. You know, one of the biggest challenges after something like a fire disruption is reconnecting with people and getting their attention to let them know that you're back in business again. So if you do see my posts out on social, do me a solid and like them, uh, comment on them or share them. Uh, It's really difficult in this day and age to actually touch base with your customers in those kinds of ways. So those kinds of supports are deeply, deeply appreciated by me. All right, be well. I'll talk to you soon.